I'm reading uh, the, the first eight verses of Genesis, and then uh, Genesis 37, and then um, from verse 18, a few verses, some selected verses. So you follow with me as these gentlemen uh, continue to get these out. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, now Jacob, that's Israel is Jacob's other name, second name, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And when he said to them, Please listen to the dream which I have, which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. It's a good way to win, friends. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now verse 18. When they saw him from a distance, that is Joseph coming, before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. Put him in here and let him starve to death. That he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Wiersbe says that we read biographies in order to satisfy our curiosity about great people and to try to find some secret to their greatness. A part of the reason that biographies are so helpful is that they have a way of distilling truth into everyday life. You read a biography and truth uh, begins to take shape. It has skin and um, flesh and teeth and hair and eyeballs and hands and those kinds of things. And you can see truth walking around for Biographies often are the embodiment of truth. Uh, Chapel says that the Bible is the greatest book on human personality. And one of the greatest personalities in the Bible is Joseph. 
uh, trivia question. Who in the book of Genesis has, more, has been given more space, more print than any other personality? No, it's not Adam, and it is not Noah, and it is not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's Joseph, strangely and uh, uh, surprisingly as it may seem. This tremendous personality then becomes the object of the focus of our study on Sunday evening for several weeks. And we're going to find the secret of this man's greatness. You remember the song, some of us are old enough to remember Stuart Hamlin's famous, the old song, you know, um, um, what is that song? <laughs> we all remember that, don't we? Oh yeah, it is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he will do for you. And you read the biography of these great people, you may forget the song, but you don't forget the secret of their greatness and you discover, hey, look at what God did in a man's life. And God can do that in my life. Now before we uh, look at Genesis 37 to begin tonight, I want you to turn to the 15th chapter of Romans and I want you to find that and then hold the place and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because not only do we have a biography that we're going to begin to study, but we have an Old Testament biography. Not only is this the account of a man's life, but it is the account, the account of an Old Testament man's life. Now, is there any validity is there any value in studying an Old Testament biography? We'll see if there is not. Verse 4 of Romans 15. For whatever was written in the earlier times, that is, for whatever was written in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So verse 4 of Romans 15 says that the reason why we're going to study this Old Testament character is because that study is going to give us instruction and hope. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things happened, that is, these Old Testament things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Now, the word example means there something that is placed into the mind. It's really a warning. See, these things have happened to us in order that we might gain from them a warning. So what we're going to glean from the study of this Old Testament personality is instruction and hope and a warning. Now, chapter 37. Chapter 37 is the stage for Joseph's biography. 
It begins, verse 2 says, in the middle of the biography. It begins in the middle of Joseph's life. When he was 17 years of age, we have this man's life dropped upon the scene. At the age of 17, he suddenly appears. And his father sends him out to tend the flocks with his brother. Now, if you have an outline, the first... um, thing there in the outline is Jacob, the aging father. Now Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. After that wrestling with the the, um, angel that night, you know the story from your uh, Sunday school, uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which means Prince of God. But the word, the name Jacob, the name he was given in the beginning, and by the way, as you already know, Old Testament characters or biblical characters were given names that characterized them or characterized a dream or a hope or a prayer that their parents had for them. It's significant that Jacob's name means chiseler or deceiver. He was a chiseler. He was a deceiver. I want to show you something tonight about Jacob in establishing this Bible study that you may not have noticed before. This man was the classic example of a preoccupied, passive father. Jacob is the classic example of a preoccupied, passive dad who is too busy for his family and too passive to deal with the problems in the lives of his boys. Now Joseph comes along, the text says, when when Jacob was older in life, he was about 46 years old, that's about my age, it is my age. And and when this boy came along, he was just kind of a a spurt of new life for, for, uh, for Jacob. Um, the 30th chapter of Genesis, if you want to turn back to there, beginning at verse, 30, at verse 22, records the birth of Joseph. When he was born, his mother gave him a name. And that name means, may he add, it was a prayer of this mother, who was Rachel, of course, for, for God to add other sons to her, other children, may he add, or add to me is literally the meaning of the name Joseph. The greatest stigma that it could ever come to a Jewish was uh, to be sterile. And these women who were barren were felt cursed of God if they had no children. And so Rachel prayed to God for a son. And God remembered her, opened her womb, and Joseph was born. And she prayed, may he add more sons, more children to me. Now where do you get this wife? Well, that's an interesting, intriguing story that most of you know. I'm just going to remind you tonight. Uh, Somebody said that all preaching is just reminding us what we already know. Well, Jacob, Jacob met this man named Laban. He had two daughters, Leah and Rachel, and he fell in love with Rachel. 
And so he worked seven years to win her from her father Laban. And, and, and Laban did a little deceiving of his own. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. He did the, 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 the classic chiseling act. He gave him the wrong daughter. He went in at night and took her for his wife, found out the next day that it was Leah. And of course he was somewhat disappointed in that, so he said he would work seven more years for Rachel. But to this, while he was um, getting ready or working for the second, for, for Rachel, the one he really loved, for those seven years, Leah gave birth, Leah and, 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 and Jacob gave birth to seven children. Six of them were boys, one of them was a girl, and her name was Dinah. Then Rachel became his wife and they, she came into the picture and they headed for Canaan. They were getting out of the land where Laban lived. And on their way or in that move, in that experience, the son Joseph was born. Now, if you'll turn to chapter 34, you're going to find an interesting thing. As they make their way toward Canaan, they come to an area called Shechem. And there a man, the son of Homar, took Dinah. Now Dinah, you remember, was one of the children born to the union of Jacob and, and, and Leah. And this man, the scripture says in the 34th chapter, verse 5, that he took her and forced her to lay with him. In other words, he raped this girl, this daughter of Jacob. Now the interesting thing, as you read chapter 34 and, and follow from verse 5, that, that Jacob knew about this, but he did nothing about it. Now in that culture, if something like that happens, the fathers and the brothers take up arms to, to, to satisfy revenge. But jo Jacob does nothing. And it's a strange thing there to the brothers, to the sons of Jacob. They don't understand why their father doesn't do something about that. In fact, Homar, the father of this boy who raped Dinah, comes to, to Jacob and begins to work out a deal for him to give this daughter to his pagan son and they'd begin what was abhorrent to the Jews that was intermarriage. I mean, he's even conniving in that. But these sons of Jacob, two of them, Simeon and Levi, I believe, as I remember, began to get revenge and they came upon this village and they murdered everybody, every male in the village, including Homar and all of his sons. And when Jacob heard about that, he was, he was distressed by it. I mean, that's not a very good PR thing for me, he says, in the last few verses of chapter 34. Well, he said, what are these folks going to do to me now because of what you've done? And verse 31 gives us an insight into this passive father and this, these sons who can't understand why their father doesn't do something. And they say, but, and they said, should we treat our sister as a harlot? Now watch this. The question they're asking here is, to their father is, should we treat our sister like a harlot as you are doing? 
Father, aren't you going to do, Dad, are you going to sit passively by and let your daughter do this and we're not going to do something about it? Okay, chapter 35. Rachel has another son and he, she names him Ben-Onai, the son of my trouble. Later, Jacob changed his name to Benjamin. And there, in giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel dies. What, a, what pathos there is in the Scriptures. Here is a man who has just gone through the experience of, his, of his, the rape of his daughter and the death of the woman he has loved from his childhood, from his young manhood. Now, chapter 35, verse 22, suggests a second thing that happens. Reuben, the oldest son, the first son by Leah, uh, his first wife, um, goes in and, and, and the scripture says, lays with, a, with the concubine. And chapter 35, verse 22, the scripture says, and Jacob heard about it, and that's the end. Now, who was this woman? Let me give you, let me back up now and, and, and get the picture here uh, historically. Jacob is married to Leah and to, and to Rachel, and by, his, by Leah, six sons, by Rachel, two sons, and these women each had a maid, the scripture says in chapter 35, and each of these maids had two sons by, by Jacob. That's 12 sons, hence the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, literally. The leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now these maids were called concubines and they were as wives to, to, in that culture, in that day. They were just as, as, as much a wife of Jacob as Leah and Rachel were. So that what this boy was doing was committing incest with his father's wife, you see. And the Bible says that Jacob heard about it. And that's the end of that. Now you might be saying, well now, don't be too hard on this man. Maybe he really didn't know that much about it. I want you to turn to chapter 49 of Genesis and look with me at verse 3. Chapter 49 of Genesis, verse 3. Now, Jacob is, is, is having conversation with all of his sons near the end of his life. Says verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. Then he says, he went up to my couch. Now, now, I don't know about you, but I want to I say, Jacob, isn't it a little late to do something about that? Where were you, Father? Where were you, Dad, when this was taking place? Isn't it a little late 
to punish the son now and take away his right as the firstborn. Now, I want us, I've given this background so you can see the relevancy of this thing and say this. Would you, would you make note of this? Passive fathers tend to favor the one who is easier to raise. You ever notice that? Passive fathers tend to, to, to favor the one who is easier to raise. I mean, a passive father doesn't want to get involved in the problems of his kids. And so if he's got one that's just easy to raise, he favors him. Now, Joseph wasn't caught up in the things that his brothers were caught up into. He wasn't involved in that, perhaps because he was born uh, much later than they, but, but, but he, was so, he was much easier to raise, and so he was, Joseph's, he was Jacob's pet. And, and Jacob doesn't try to hide it. Verse 3 says that he gave him this very colored tunic, now, your, your Bible may have at the bottom a long, a full-length robe. That's the literal translation of the tunic, a full-length robe. Now, that doesn't mean a lot except this. Watch this. Leupold, a, a uh, uh, legitimate biblical Old Testament scholar, in fact, one, trustworthy, and one you can read after and know you got it pretty well, says called that tunic a, a sleeved tunic, full length. Now, see if you can get this picture. Suppose you had a, um, you were going to employ somebody tomorrow to dig a ditch, you know, out in your uh, place, and, and you got this guy and you hired this fellow to dig a ditch, and he came to work tomorrow in a full suit. I mean, he had a suit and tie and and shoes shined and, and vest and the whole works, uh, you wouldn't, uh, I don't suppose you'd think he's be, you know, coming to work, you know, dig ditches for sure. Or suppose you had hired somebody to, uh, to wash dishes in your restaurant and, and, and tomorrow they came in a full length mink coat and high heels and the very best, I mean, me, Neiman Marcus dress. Well, you, you'd think they were totally overdressed for that job. Now, that's what you get here when Joseph goes out into this field with his full-length sleeve tunic, what, Je what Jacob is saying, son, you don't have to work. You just go out there in the pasture with your brothers and supervise for me. And they hated him for that. And besides all that, Jacob has this dream that they're going to bow down to him. And then if you'll notice, he has a second dream in which he even says to his father, passive father, chapter 37, verse 10 and 11, that, that, that his father's going to bow down to him. And verse 11 says that, the father, that, that Jacob wondered about that but said nothing to his son. Passive father, preoccupied dad. Now, I don't have to tell you tonight that the American family is in trouble. 38%, over 40, by the way, over 40% of all first marriages end in divorce. And 79% of those who marry and divorce will remarry, marry someone else, 
and 44% of second marriages end in divorce. Four out of every 10 children born in the United States will live most of their lives in single parent homes. 17% of all children under 18 live tonight in single parent dwellings. 1.8 million children are called latchkey kids. That's a Q word, a clue word that sociologists use for kids that wear keys around their neck tied to a string in order to let themselves in to their houses at night. Tomorrow, two million kids will come to their homes alone. Newsweek magazine a few months back read an article called The Saving of the Family and talked about a, a study made at the University of Rhode Island that the most, now listen to this, the most dangerous place for children to be in the 20th century, in 1980s, apart from riots and wars, is in their own homes. Did you know that 30% of the couples who are married today experience domestic violence? Did you know that two million families every year in America use lethal weapons on each other? Did you know that 20% of all the policemen who are killed in the line of duty are killed in response to calls to domestic quarrels and domestic violence? It is said that from 6 to 15 million women, they're not even able to, to get a, a ballpark figure, but from 6 to 15 million women are battered every year in the United States. It doesn't require too much intelligence to believe that the American family is in trouble. Where are you, Dad? The modern male says, I'm too busy. I'm preoccupied with my work. And the modern woman says, the good life's not going to pass me by. And the children are left to make it on their own. And they don't. A number of years ago, I was asked to... Uh, to preach a revival in South Dallas. It's now uh, completely industrialized. As you go out uh, I-35 or whatever it is toward Houston, I guess it's some other, maybe what, I-40. You'll go right over where I preached a revival. It was in, it was in that time back in the early uh, 60s when um, the, uh, the blacks were moving in to the to the. Uh, areas of where the whites were living. There were a lot of problems. Anyway, a little old church out in southeast Dallas. Well, I got there and the preacher told me about um, uh, a, a, a man who lived next door to the church um, who, who is lost and he wanted me to go visit with him. 
I remembered, and I lived in Fort Worth at the time, I remember picking up the Fort Worth Star-Telegram and had on the front page the picture of a real good-looking, beautiful young woman. And uh, she had been killed in a car wreck. Her and two boys had uh, skipped school and, and went to the State Fair, Texas, and they were going at a high speed down out toward DeSoto, Texas, and turned that car over and killed her. The boys weren't hurt, but she was killed. It just so happened that that girl was the daughter of that man who lived next door to the church. Um, he was living with a woman who was not his wife. She was an alcoholic. I remember we got there uh, the, between church time and the time he got off work. It was already dark. He was eating supper. The wife, the stepmother of this daughter was already drunk. She never looked at us, never even acknowledged that we were there. He was eating supper. I never will forget what he's eating. I mean, how he was eating. He was eating cornbread, English peas, and fish sticks. He was cramming it in his mouth like, he'd, like he was, had his last meal. I mean, he, he was woofing it down. He was drinking iced tea out of a tin can. Just a real deprived thing. And he was raging. He was raging at, at the fact that his daughter was killed and, and he was raging against God. And he was raging against the fact not only that his daughter was killed but that these boys were not. And this is what he said. He said, you, you come here to talk to me about God? He said, what kind of a God would allow that to happen? He'd cram some food in his mouth. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to sue those boys for everything they've got. He crammed some old food in his mouth. He said, it just doesn't seem fair to me that my daughter's lying down yonder a corpse and these boys are out running around. He said, what is there, what kind of a God is that? He crammed some food in his mouth. Well, I could tell we weren't going to have that much success, so we left, started to leave. When we got to the door, I could tell that that was eating a hole in his gut. He got me by the hand, and he nearly broke it. He was a welder. I mean, he must have, he must have been 6'5", and he, he gripped my hand, and he looked me right in the eye, and he said, you don't think God blames me, do you? And I looked right back in his eye, and I said, sir, I think God will hold you accountable. Now here comes the caravan and the boys say, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's sell him to the caravan. And they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. It's the price you get for a crippled slave. A crippled slave. And they sell Joseph to the caravan and they take the tunic. Isn't it significant? that the symbol of their father's favoritism they saved and covered with blood. And they come back, not so much uh, to, to, to deceive their father, but in mockery they bring this tunic saying, What's it gonna, how's it going to help him now, in essence? And they say to their father, Joseph is dead. Now, let me hurry to say four lessons. Get these, would you? Number one, no family is exempt from adversity. 
I don't care how godly you may be. Now I want to be sure that you understand. Don't you go out of here and say that the preacher says that all adversity in the family is because the parents are not godly. I did not say that and I never have, never will. No family is exempt from adversity. I don't care how godly you may be. It may happen to me just like it happened to Joseph. I know some of the godliest people in the, in the pastorate back out in West Texas and Tulia who shed tears, bitter tears over their son. They were the godliest people I've ever pastored. And they've said to me, what are we doing wrong? What have I done wrong? I've said over and over, oh, quit blaming yourself. No family is exempt from adversity. I don't, know how, I don't care how godly you may be. Secondly, no enemy is more subtle than passivity. No enemy is more subtle than passivity. If you are passive as a parent, you will discipline your children in anger every time. If you're a passive father, you'll discipline in anger. You will just allow this to build up and build up and build up and you'll do nothing about it, but it'll just be down there just gathering up stuff inside of you, just old bad stuff. And one of these days you'll just explode and you'll be brutal in your discipline and you'll, uh, in your punishment and you'll no more discipline your children than a fly. You'll just punish them brutally. You see, passivity keeps us being inconsistent. There's no enemy more subtle than passivity. Third, there is no response more cruel than jealousy. Folks, if you let jealousy continue among your siblings and you don't do anything about it, you're asking for a heap of trouble. Sometimes we not only allow it but we encourage it. When your child comes home with a grade, a report card, and that child said, look here, mother, what I got on my report card. Look here, dad, what I got. Well, what did Billy make? Well, Billy made an A. Well, you can beat Billy. You're encouraging jealousy. If your child comes home and says, this is what I've done, well, what does so-and-so do? Well, you're a better student, better, better athlete, better person, better student than them. You're encouraging jealousy. And you are headed down the road to, 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 to a heap of trouble and a lot of pain. You need to come down hard on that. I need to come down on hard on that. I want you to note this and try to remember it because I think it's important and significant. We need to come down as hard on attitudes as we do on actions. Don't let that attitude develop. Number four, no condition is more unfair than slavery. Wasn't Joseph's fault? He got sold out into, into, into Egypt and into slavery. It wasn't his fault. There is no condition more unfair than slavery. Whatever that slave, whatever farm that slavery takes, it's not fair. If it is prejudice, 
If it is some resentment you have toward other people in your church family and you enslave them in your attitude and habit, it's unfair. Now let me close with this. Who models Joseph in the New Testament? Who does? Jesus. Watch this. Jesus is the perfect model of Joseph. He was sent by his father into the vineyard. He was hated by his brothers. He was mistreated by the people to whom he came. He was sold for the price of a slave. He was nailed and left to die. And the one who died became the salvation of many. And Joseph, who was hated by his brothers, mistreated by those he came unto, sold for the price of a crippled slave, and left to die, became the salvation of many. Now, the question we have to answer is this. Where are we? Where are we, Dad? Where are we, brother? Where are we, Joseph? You're either the father, you're either the brother, you're either the Joseph. If you're the father, are you like this? Passive, preoccupied? Are you the brother who holds resentment and hatred towards your brother? Or are you the Joseph who allows God to work in everything, holds no revenge, no resentment, but becomes the redemptive agent of everybody in your world? Who are you? Let's pray together. Father, teach us from your word and from the lives of others. Instruct us. Give us hope. Warn us. Lord, what we've talked about tonight hits pretty close to home to me. I find myself a lot in Jacob. I find myself a lot in the brothers, I find myself a little in Joseph. Lord, deal with me. Deal with me as a responsible brother and father and help me to become the means of the saving, the redemption of others. Because I pray in Jesus' name, ask it for His sake.